Hello ninjas and ninjets and welcome to another episode of the Exposure Ninja Digital Marketing Podcast. My name's Tim, your host and head ninja at Exposure Ninja, which is a digital agency based in the UK. This show is all about helping you to generate more leads and sales from your website. And in each episode, I bring in someone from inside or outside Exposure Ninja to explain what they've learned about how to do that. In this episode, I'm joined by Edward Navraumont, or if you want to use the French pronunciation, Edward Navraumont, although he begged me not to do that. The reason I brought Edward onto this show is he has such a wealth of experience. He was the first person at Expedia to head up a conversion optimization team. He was in charge of building and optimizing their loyalty program. He then went to a place for mum where he was in charge of building out the the sales process using a consultancy and advisor-led approach. And now he's at General Assembly where he's chief marketing officer. Now, We take a kind of lazy river tour through his career, stopping off at different places. So whether it's looking at how you can use a loyalty program with your business, whether it's how to know whether you should be inviting people to sign up for something or book a consultation, whether it's how to build all the infrastructure behind that. So really fascinating guy, loads of really relevant experience. And I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Now, if you're a little bit frustrated with your website's performance, maybe you're not generating as many leads and sales as you think it could or should, then I want to encourage you to check out the free review which Exposure Ninja offers. So head over to ExposureNinja.com. You'll see a little button there to request your free review. Now, when you request your free review, one of our expert marketing strategists will have a look through your site. They'll have a look at your different traffic sources, and they'll also take a look at what your competitors are doing. They'll then map you out a step-by-step process which you can follow to generate more leads and sales from your site. It's freaking awesome. Anyway, without further ado, enjoy the show with Edward. Edward, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you've had an amazing career so far. Um, and what we're going to do in this episode is take a bit of a tour of, uh, of some interesting stops along the way, starting off at Expedia. So um, Maybe perhaps you could uh, set the scene and give us a bit of insight into where Expedia was at the time that you joined. Uh, sure. So, uh, so obviously, Expedia is in the news quite a bit right now with uh, Dara moving from Expedia to Uber. Dara was, was CEO when I was there. Big challenge we had at Expedia at the time was the technology stack. I remember at the time we tried to get social media was taking off and we wanted a Facebook share button. So after you booked your flight or your hotel, you could hit a button to share that you're traveling with your friends on Facebook. I talked to that engineering team and they said, this, that would probably take us about six months and cost us half a million dollars to add that Facebook share button. I was just flabbergasted. Everyone was. My boss was we're like, how is that possible? But that's the state we were at. And a lot of companies get to this point because in the early days, it's all about like failing fast and building out something that can get your get the job done, but they don't think for like long-term long-term infrastructure. It's, it's, it's basically tech debt. They take on the tech, tech debt in the beginning because um, if they tried to build everything perfectly for the long-term, they wouldn't last for the long-term because they have to do the short-term stuff. And Expedia was in that stage where we had had 10 years of tech debt that had been built up to the point where if you wanted to make any change on the website, there was it was at such a risk of taking the entire site down. They had to do so many double checks. It was just, it was just a bunch of spaghetti code. And to Dara's credit, one of the things that he said we need to do is fix that. We need to get rid of that tech debt. But the problem is you can't just stop a company in its tracks while you fix the tech debt. In fact, I, I know, I remember at the time I said, why don't we just do that? Why don't we just like pause everything, go and re, like the site's just not that complicated. Let's rebuild the whole site onto the side and then just transfer everything over. Why don't we just do that? And the answer I was given is that only one company, that, the person I was talking to anyway, the person said that only one company that he knew had ever done that. And that company was Friendster. And that didn't turn out very well for Friendster. <laughs> uh, you can't just stop things. You have to keep. You have to repair the airplane while you're still flying the airplane. But that's what we did. I was in the. And I was there during the heat of that time when we were trying to change, fix the, the core infrastructure while we were still flying the plane. I left before that core infrastructure was fully fixed, but it paid dividends. After I left, once that infrastructure was fully built, it meant made it really easy for the to, to layer on other brands and other companies and integrate them. It would, would have been impossible for Expedia to acquire TripAdvisor, sorry, tra- uh, Travelocity while, um, or while I was there. But after the infrastructure was fixed, they were able to attach on Travelocity. Then they attached on Orbits. They attached on HomeAway. 
those big successful acquisitions that Expedia has done in the last few years were because Dara focused at the time on building that core infrastructure to allow them to scale. But it's a hard thing to do in any company because it, it, you're making a choice for long-term versus short-term, and it really, really hurts you in the short-term to say, hey, we're, we're, we're going to slow down doing a bunch of stuff in order to, to build this long-term infrastructure and get rid of the tech debt. That's the, that's the area I was living in. I guess that's similar to, I remember maybe a couple of years ago when Mark Zuckerberg said Facebook is going to focus purely on mobile. And at the time it seemed a bit, it seemed a bit too soon. And I was like, well, that doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. But actually that kind of short-term risk, like you say, has, has really paid off now there's such a dominant mobile ad platform. Yeah, I, I, obviously I wasn't there when, when that happened, but I've read about it. And uh, I, think, I think you're right. It's a, kind of a company-wide reskilling effectively for, for 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 changing the focus of the company, and you, you can't you can't do it until the plane is like well in the air. But now you're doing it while the plane is flying. And the, the, the next role I had was at a place for mom. And we kind of did the same thing, not at the na- not not at nearly the same scale we did at Expedia. We were a fifty million dollar revenue type company. We just didn't have any ability to scale the business, and so we had to go and change everything, while at the same time making sure we still hit our revenue targets every month so we can make payroll. Expedia was never in an existential threat position, but when you're a smaller company, make that transition, you, you absolutely are an, ex- an existential threat. If you start missing payroll, your staff start leaving you, and then everything kind of spirals down. So you have to kind of keep things going while you transition from this one phase to the next. I know that, just going back to Expedia for a second, I know that one of the things that you were responsible for was was getting the loyalty program set up, wasn't it? So why, why what were their reasons? I mean, aside from the obvious, what were their reasons to start the loyalty program? Did they, did they identify from competitors that this was something they need to do or was this something that you brought up? Yeah, so I, so I, was, I was brought on uh, to, to run loyalty among other things. The loyalty programs existed before I was there. We, we effectively had three when I came on board. One was called a Thank You Program, which was a partnership with Citibank. Uh, one was the Elite Plus Program, and the other was a credit card program. So the credit card program was pretty self-explanatory. Expedia had a credit card, and you could earn Expedia. Not true. You could earn thank you points on your credit card, spending them like, like way, the way anyone has a credit card. A lot of people don't think of credit cards as loyalty programs, but they kind of are. The second uh, was the point program, which what most people think of when they think of a loyalty program. And what had been done before, again, before I got there was that Citibank came on and said, hey, we want to create a coalition loyalty program. So the U.S. doesn't really have a coalition loyalty program. Almost every other major company, country in the world has a coalition program. So Canada has, has two. They have Air Miles and Aeroplan. Uh, the U.K. has the Nectar program. Germany has one. Japan has three. So every most countries have these coalition programs. What the coalition for those few American listeners who have no idea what I'm talking about, everyone else in the, in the country in the world is probably nodding their heads right now. But Americans have no idea what this even is because it just doesn't exist in this country. And a coalition program is where a national, usually a national grocery chain, partners with a national gas station, partners with a national home repair shop, partners with a national drugstore. Uh, and they all give out the same currency, the same points, and that you can then use to spend at any of those places. Coalition loyalty programs are really, really valuable. They're effectively a marketplace. Same way that Expedia is a marketplace for hotels, coalition loyalty programs become a marketplace for points. And they're less about loyalty and far more about customer acquisition. Because if you're going to, in Canada, it's an A&P grocery store has the Air Miles program, I believe. Um, and if you're, if you're collecting your Air Miles points at A&P and you're deciding which gas station to go to, well, on the margin, if you're going to pay the same price for gas at two different places and one's going to earn you like shell points, which like you're not never going to use, the other one's going to earn you Air Miles points, which you know you can use because you've already started collecting them at your grocery store, you're going to go to the, you're going to go to the, the, the gas station on, on the margin. You'll go to the gas station that gives you the Air Miles points. And now that you're collecting Air Miles points at your gas station and your grocery store, when you decide which drugstore you're going to go to, well, maybe you go to Shoppers Drug Mart that has the, the same Air Miles program. And so they basically use this acquisition to acquire each other's customers. And it works really, really well. And the companies that build that marketplace end up just, they can charge a premium for it. Usually they ho- hold the points balance, but they charge people, of, in loyalty, they call them earn and burn. So when you're earning the points, Say the points are worth a penny. Nectar or Air Miles might charge companies 1.1 or 1.2 point cents to give out those points. And then when they turn around and spend the points for a penny, they might charge the company, they may buy the things from the company for 80 cents on the dollar. And so they're making a 40% spread. Uh, so it's great for the, for the 
but it builds the, the coalition. And it's, uh, it's great for the coalition members usually too because they have this customer acquisition across places. And so Citibank decided they were going to try to go and create a coalition in the U.S. Every coalition in the U.S. has failed for a variety of reasons. We could probably spend a whole episode on that. In this case, Citibank said, we're going to do it. We're going to create – we're going to be the, the anchor tenant, which is the, the, the bank itself. Uh, and now we need coalition members. And they signed up Expedia to be the first member of the coalition. And Expedia was also the last member of the coalition. So they never managed to build the coalition out. I inherited a, a program where it was effectively Citibank's loyalty program with Expedia lopped onto it. And uh, one of my things I did there was get us off of the city's program and onto an Expedia, Expedia's own program. Most loyalty programs destroy value. If you look at retailers with loyalty programs versus ones without, the ones without uh, tend to outperform the ones with. And so don't think you, if you're thinking about whether you need a loyalty program, you probably don't. And if you are going to have a loyalty program, think really, really hard about how you build it. On average, they destroy value. It doesn't mean they always destroy value. It just means on average they do. And so the default program is not good. If you, if you do it right, then you can absolutely create value, but you have to be careful. Expedia's with Citibank actually wasn't destroying value. We, I went and we went and did the analysis and it showed that it wasn't driving loyalty, but it was, what it was doing was, was shifting channels and it was driving people away from the paid channels on Expedia to the free channels on Expedia. And so we're making up for it on basic customer acquisition costs. Is at least something, um, but it was pretty marginal. So we got off it and got on to, we created Expedia Rewards. Um, it took us almost a year and a half from an engineering perspective to build it out. And when we built it, we made a lot of compromises. So when you you earned the points, all fine and good, and that, that system worked. But we actually launched the program where you could earn before you could burn. So you could earn points when we launched the program, but you couldn't spend them on anything. It took us another three months to be able to build the technology so you could spend the points. And when we did... Again, more compromises were made, and we had you be able to spend points on. Uh, you could spend it directly on flights. You could buy airplane tickets with your points, but you couldn't buy hotels with your points. You could buy a hotel gift card and then use the gift card to go and use the gift card to buy, to buy your hotel. None of these things were strategic choices to say, "Hey, this is going to be the the smart way to build this program." It was purely about like, how do we get this thing out the door? Given the technology stack that we were working with. It was, it was problem solving to make things happen rather than problem solving to make things perfect. And, and, and so we got that up. So the, hey, the big thing we happened when we launched off cities is, is all the premiums they were charging for running the program. We took that all in house. Um, and so I don't, the program was, was better. It was, we, we, we used some smart design choices that we made that made it better. The big thing it let us do is take the costs way out, which allowed us to make the program richer for consumers for, for a lower price for Expedia. So, when you say that most loyalty programs destroy value for a company, is this because they're effectively discounting their products and they're not driving enough repeat business to, 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 to pay for that? Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So it depends on the industry you're in, but let's talk retail. So in retail, if you're, your margin on retail is, say, 10%, uh, depends on the retailer. Like grocery stores will be lower than a, a, fashion, fast, a fashion retailer. Let's say a grocery store, you're making 10% margin. Let's say you give 1% back on your, on your loyalty program. You've just cut your margin by 10%. And so you need to have uh, an 11 12% lift in sales for that to work. 1% back on a point-based system is probably not going to get you a 12% lift. And so, you're, 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 again, you're going to end up destroying value. But it's actually worse than that because the cost for you to give 1% back is probably more than 1% because – It'd be easy for you to discount all your prices by 1%, but then building like a, a separate currency and then managing that currency, um, there's a lot of fixed costs that go into that. A lot of technology costs. You're going to have to hire people to go and manage all that, or you're going to have to hire an agency to go and do it for you. So it's, it's, it's fairly difficult to build this. And the currency you're giving out is less valued by the consumer. So if I'm a consumer and, you say, and I said, hey, Tim, I'm going to, or, or say, say you're going to buy from me. And I said, hey, Tim, I can give you a $10 back or I can give you $10 back in Ed Bucks you can only spend with Ed in the future. Um, like it's, it's a no-brainer which of those two things are more valuable to you. And so this is a case where, as a company, you're giving out currency that's probably costing you more than $10 to give to your consumers, and they're valuing it less than $10. Well, man, you'd be better off just discounting your product. Um, why not discount, just discount your product? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is it's, it's, a, it's a trick to get around com- uh, competition. So in many cases, like you may find that Walmart will match your prices, but they won't match your points-based stuff that you give. And so it's a way for you to undercut Walmart in price without Walmart matching you. In the hotel space, um, there's all sorts of hotel parity rules where Expedia agrees with the hotel to not undercut 
hotel directly and the hotel agrees not to undercut Expedia directly. So both of them match each other in price and then give out discount points to the consumers on the back end. Um, or if you have a situation where one person is paying, but the other person gets the points, um, which happens a lot in travel. So you might go and fly. When you fly for business, your company's going to pay for your, your, your flight on Delta, but they, they, they don't go and take those points. You effectively pay for those points when you fly in Delta, but the company doesn't take the points. The points just go to the individual. And so in a situation like that, like people become less price sensitive and they, they'd rather have the points than a dollar discount because they get the points and their company gets the dollar discount. So there are reasons why you can make these systems work. Or again, the coalition points is another, another example. But basically, loyalty programs are a fight for mindshare, not a price for discounts. Um, and it's really, really hard to get that mindshare without some sort of coalition. Or if you're... Uh, Say you're a big enough retailer. Say you're like a big grocery chain and you've already decided as a consumer that I'm going to shop at that grocery chain all the time because it's the one close to my house. It's where I'm going. And they start giving out points. I'll be very happy to take those points, but it's not changing my behavior because I was going to, I'm, I'm going to that, I already know I'm going to go to the grocery chain. Where the grocery chain really wants is they want to acquire new customers, get new people in the door to go and trial their product. Hopefully they turn them into regular customers or get the people on the margin who are like, trading off between two places to come to their store marginally more often than the other place. In both of those cases, points don't do very much. Um, it's not going to convince me to shop at a store that I otherwise wouldn't shop at. I might go to Trader Joe's because they have like some special food that they can't get somewhere else. Or I might go to Costco because their prices are much lower. Um, I might go to grocery store A because they're much closer to where I want to be. Uh, but how often do you say, I'm going to go to this grocery store because of their point system? Like it just doesn't, it's not, a, it's not the driver. And on the margin, when you're trading off between two places, at that point, the currency doesn't have a saliency for you because uh, you're not consolidating all your spend in one place. Um, and so on the margin, that the points aren't valuable for you. And if the other place is giving you a small dollar discount, you'll take that over the points, um, even if the points are even if you get more points than the dollars. So um, those are reasons why point programs in general don't help and are a, a bad idea. You can imagine, you can create scenarios where they, they could be good. You can also create scenarios where you can use the data you're collecting from points to go and give targeted discounts uh, in effective ways. So there's, again, ways you can build them that they work, but most of the time, if you don't build them, if you don't spend some time thinking about why you should have a program to begin with and how you can design it properly, chances are you're going to end up with a program where the value you're giving to consumers is less than the, value, the cost that it's costing you to give it to them. So with all of this in mind, what were some of the things that you did with the Expedia loyalty program designed to drive profit and to actually make it a profitable, worthwhile thing? So a few things. So looking at the city program that we inherited, um, it was already more than breaking even. On the margin, it was creating value by, by just getting customers to come into Expedia from different channels than they otherwise would. The people just shopped around a little bit less um, and that was enough to pay for the program. So... At the time uh, I came into the program, I was when I was hired by Expedia to come in, uh, my first comment was, hey, just so you know, um, my, I'm probably going to want to shut down the program. Do you still want to hire me? Uh, <laughs> and they said, yeah, if that's the right thing to do, go ahead. And that's what you should do. So the first thing I did is when I came and analyzed the program, I said, no, actually, you don't need to shut it down. I wouldn't build this program. I wouldn't have spent the money it costs to go and build it. But once it's built, it's actually like making you a little bit of money. So path dependence, keep it going. So then the question became like, hey, was it worth it to go and switch to something new? And so we decided it was. The first thing is just from the costs alone. So forgetting about like how we can make the program better and drive more loyalty, what was it costing us to give out, to give out the program that we were actually doing? We, we, we realized that our cons consumers didn't care about thank you points versus Expedia points. In fact, any research we did said that they cared, they'd rather have Expedia points than thank you points. Thank you points were confusing for Expedia customers. I'm sure the Citibank customers love the thank you points, but... The overlap between the two customers wasn't high enough that it made a big difference. And so we knew that if we could switch into Expedia points, people intrinsically valued them more than the thank you points they're getting right now. And by converting them over to Expedia points, it just cost us less. So at the time, and again, without going into the, 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 the actual economics that I'm sure I'm, on, I'm under an NDA to not, not talk about, um, but obviously Expedia if we gave out a penny in points to the Expedia customers, City would charge us more than a penny for those points, same way any coalition loyalty program would. And so, um, if we're for paying $100 in points and it's costing us $110 for those points, once we start issuing them ourselves, well, it doesn't cost us $110 anymore. Now it costs $100. So that's pretty good. 
The second thing that happens in these programs is um, is on the burn side. So once they've earned the thank you points, we want to spend those thank you points on Expedia. Just like any coalition loyalty program, we would give the bank a discount um, uh, when customers want to use those points. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but say it's another 10%. So someone earns 100 points on Expedia, costs $110. But then when they spend those 110 points on Expedia, we only charge city $90. So effectively, it's costing us 20 bucks to give out $100 worth of points. Sorry, uh, $120 to give out $100 worth of points. That's something that's being spent back on our own merchandise and so on. So you're, you're, you're a little bit okay, but um, you're paying 10% on both sides. Once you put it in-house, you, you, you internalize those two charges. And so immediately you make that 20% more. But it's better than that because there's something else in loyalty point programs called breakage. And so I don't know if you've ever earned points somewhere and not spent them all, but it happens all the time, especially for the lower use people. Like if you go to, I shop at a, um, a Rite Aid regularly near my house and I earned a bunch of Rite Aid points. I've never spent those Rite Aid points. I'm not even sure how to spend those Rite Aid points. Um, so I've built up a bigger and bigger, yeah. effectively they have a, at Rite Aid for me has built up a very large uh, accounts payable where they owe me a whole bunch of money from these points that I've earned and they have to hold those on their balance sheet, but it's not cost them any cash and it probably never will. And loyalty, they call that breakage. And so and many loyalty programs, you can expect a 50% breakage rate where 50% of the points you give out will never be used. Wow. And again, depending on how you design your program, it'll be higher or lower. And so when we were partnering with City, City basically profited from all that breakage. So we would pay them, call it $110 for $100 worth of points, but they would only have $50 of those points being spent back at Expedia. And all those $50, they would take that 10% margin or so. So it cost them $45. So of the $100 worth of points they were making the difference between 110 and 45. Uh, was that $65 every single time we, we did that. So it cost us 110. It would cost them, we'd basically pay them 110 and they would pay us back 45 uh, and they'd make that spread. And now that 45 that was paid back to us, obviously we had to pay our hotel suppliers and our airline suppliers and so on. Whereas once you pocket it all in-house, uh, Expedia makes that spread. And so by bringing it all in-house, we we took that spread. The whole product program became more um, more profitable. Uh, or less costly, let's say. It wasn't profitable, less costly. And that gave us flexibility to design the program more aggressively. And the first thing we did to build the program more aggressively is uh, is basically built the program around upsell. And so even if, from a rational point of view, a, a 10%, a 1% off on a product doesn't do very much, if you, if you design it right, you can make people change their incentives on the margin. And that's what we try to do with the new program. Um, and we created an escalator. Most people who buy one product on Expedia buy a flight. Most people buy, buy two products, buy a flight and a hotel. If they buy three products, it's a flight and a hotel and a car rental. And if it's four products, it's a flight, hotel, car rental, and an activity, um, like scuba diving or whatever they, they go. But that's, that's the definite order of the volume that people buy in. And so what we did with the program is, oh, and one of the things that Expedia's real big advantage versus like buying directly with hotels or with air is packages. If you buy a package at Expedia, it's actually a very good consumer deal. So you buy a flight and a hotel together. It's one of the few ways in travel that you can actually save money versus most ways where companies say they're 40% off or hotels you, tells you they're 40% off. just means that that's their actual price. They're always 40% off. And there will be 40% off on Expedia. There'll be 40% off on hotels.com. There'll be 40% off on booking.com. There'll be 40% off if you buy directly from their site. Like Everyone's paying, charging the same price and they're all claiming big discounts, but those discounts are just the real price. But one way that you can really save money, incremental money beyond the discount that everybody gets is, um, is buying things in packages. There's a variety of reasons for that, the way the economics of the travel industry work, but it's, it was one of Expedia's big advantages because they had better packages than everybody else. The problem was is very few people bought things in packages. So uh, one of the things we did with the, the loyalty program was create an incentive for people to buy packages beyond the fact that it was, again, you buy a package at Expedia, you're getting a 20, 10, 20, 40% discount sometimes. But again, people didn't do it. They didn't realize they could do it. And so we just simplified it and built an accelerator into the, 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 the points earning. So if you bought a flight, you got one, if you bought one product with Expedia, you got one point per dollar. If you bought, which is basically 1% off. If you bought two products, you got 2% off. You bought three products, you got three points per dollar. If you got four products, you got four points per dollar. We could make that work because Expedia's margin was higher on those, like they made a high, they make a higher margin on hotels and a higher margin still on car and a higher margin still on activities. 
And since very few people were buying an activity and then adding a flight, the economics of that worked out well. And it also just drove this perception of the value of these packages. And because we took the program off of city, the cost for our points went down. So it doesn't, wasn't, or instead of costing us 1.1% to give a 1% discount, now it's costing us 0.45%. Uh, uh, it costs us 0.045%, sorry, 0.45% to give out 1% back. And that allowed us to just make the whole program richer. And that's exactly what we did. We made the program richer and we added these, these cross-sell, upsell opportunities in, built into the program to drive people to packages. And when we launched it, we, this is the first time I've heard of anyone doing this, is we A-B test the loyalty program. because uh, we launched it in beta and we took basically a bunch of ex- existing Expedia customers and we, uh, we basically said, give them the opportunity to join the program on a beta test basis uh, where they could earn before anybody else. And some people, we offered the chance to join the program. Some people, we gave an accelerator on the program. Some people, we didn't get, we just didn't offer them the chance to join the program at all. And then we monitored what their spend was at Expedia for about four months. And, uh, and we saw a real lift. The people that we gave the, the program to end up spending more with Expedia over those four months. Whether they actually, whether they joined the program or not, but given the opportunity to join the program, I guess they felt special and they spent significantly more with Expedia. What didn't matter was how rich the program was. So whether we gave out, give those people 1% back or 10% back, the lift was insignificantly different between the, uh, between the groups, but the group that didn't get a chance to join the program at all spent significantly lower. And so that just basically helped us figure out like that it was this program was worth it. Having a program was worth it. How rich the program was didn't seem to matter. Isn't that fascinating? What, what a good job that uh, that you tested it before before rolling out, say, ten percent discounts. Then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, so it's actually very, very hard to test these types of programs the way that most companies do on A/B testing. Because if you, as soon as you test a program, um, the program the program works because everyone knows about it, and if no one knows about the program. Uh, it's unlike a uh, below the line email or a, a web page where you can test back and forth. Like you kind of need long term tracking of individuals on these programs, and so they're very very hard to do a real A B test on them. You end up doing before and after tests, before and after analyses, and so on. But we were actually for a four month period because we had to do this beta thing because we were limited by the technology. It gave us the opportunity to run it as a test, and so we did. <laughs> I wouldn't take that finding home to the bank because it was only a four-month period. And obviously, there's no, there no way to earn, to, no way to spend those points. You could just earn on those points. You couldn't spend them. And I think a long term, a lot of value of this, these programs depend on, on how sticky they are over the long term. But at least for the first four months, we had a we had we had some data. And so it's nice to make decisions based on data than, than rather than pure gut. On that on that kind of uh, on that note, you also were involved with the first conversion optimization team in Expedia, and I'm guessing that this is a time when conversion optimization wasn't such a focus and it wasn't such a, I guess there weren't, maybe there weren't as many key principles and a lot of um, best practice driven stuff. Is that, is that, is that, uh, is that fair to say? So it's not, enti- and not entirely accurate, Tim, because they, 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 I think AB testing started at Expedia probably in the early 2000s, um, uh, probably from the early days of the internet. Where I was involved, when I, when I was there, um, there were two teams at Expedia. There was a team that was doing pay, uh, online marketing. So they, their job was to drive traffic to the website. There was another team that was responsible for merchandising, and they were responsible for the website itself. In fact, there was four teams because each uh, region in Expedia had their own team. So there was a team for Europe, a team for the U.S., a team for, for Canada, a team for, for Asia Pacific. Um, and each of those four teams had a merchandising team that was building the website and running A-B tests all over the place, or as much as they could given the infrastructure challenges we had at the time. What they didn't have was a really good connection between the two teams. So what happened was is the, the marketing team would look at the website, look at what existed on the website, and they would send traffic to those pages the best they, the best they could, whatever they thought would convert the best. Merchandising team would take the traffic they were getting from the marketing team and try to do as much conversion rate optimization as they could to make that, as, to make that traffic convert as best as possible. What they didn't have was a landing pages team. And the idea of the landing pages team is rather than like restricting yourself to the pages that are already on the website, it's it's building the pages specifically for the traffic that you're buying. Let's say someone, uh, let's say your your Google search is uh, hotels near the Eiffel Tower, and you go inside, you want to buy that traffic. Well, you want to land people on a landing page that talks about hotels near the Eiffel Tower. 
Now, at Expedia, we might not have had that page because maybe the people on the site, there was no real way for people on the site to go and search for it in that particular way, which is probably why they went to Google to begin with to do that search. So the marketing team would basically land them on a page that was like maybe hotels in Paris, which is close, but not really what the person was searching for. With the landing pages team, you just go and you build a page that just has hotels near the Eiffel Tower. And you can imagine a million variations on this, like hotels with balconies in Seattle, dog-friendly hotels in Barcelona. Just what any possible, any possible term on Google you could build landing pages for. And we weren't doing that. So uh, I helped recruit uh, a McKinsey guy from Chicago to come and join Expedia and uh, another, uh, another guy from Vancouver. And the two of them came over and they basically just built a landing pages team. And we uh, found a way to kind of build it off of the technology stack that we're currently using at Expedia to be able to do lots of iterative testing and build pages specifically for the traffic we were getting, both paid and organic marketing. The idea of having a landing pages group is pretty standard today. But it wasn't, again, it wasn't that long ago. I was at Expedia in 2009 and Expedia was a pretty sophisticated marketing company. Uh, and we didn't think it turned into a landing pages team at the time. Uh, we, they did now and they, they definitely do now. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, we're, we landing pages is something we build for our pay-per-click clients. And, you know, we're, we're doing landing pages for local solicitors firms. So to think that even, you know, just eight years ago, it was, uh, it was a new thing to a company as large as Expedia is amazing. So what were some of the things that, that you guys learned during that and j- during those projects? Was there anything that about, particularly about user behavior that, that surprised you? So user behavior surprised me all the time. I'm trying to think if there's any good examples. <laughs> the number of times where I've said, we don't even need to test that because that's not going to work, that it's turned around and worked, has ma- it makes you very, very, very <laughs> humble. Um, I can't think of a great example at Expedia. At the time, we were doing very much catch-up. Like Booking.com was far ahead on the landing pages space. And so a lot of our effort was just trying to make sure we were caught up to them rather than during, trying to innovate and push, push a lot for, further forward. But I'll give you a great, a great example of the, the, the next company I was at. We had a, a very strong uh, celebrity spokesperson who uh, was very closely tied to our brand, very, very well-loved, very, very well-liked, very, very strong recognition. And my team basically said, hey, we want to take our homepage and take off our the celebrities and instead make the homepage look like Zillow's homepage. And I said, are you crazy? Like all the equity of our company is tied up in this celebrity spokesperson. It's not going to work. And they said, can we test it? And I said, yes, we can test anything that anyone, if anyone on my team wants to test something, like you got to give them the judgment to go and test it. But I'm like, I am putting down my stake now that this is not going to work, but go ahead and test it. And I was completely wrong. The Zillow-ish homepage that took away our celebrity spokesperson that was that every metric we had told us that the consumers loved, we took her off and built the page that looked, made, basically looked like the Zillow homepage with the big like search bar right in the middle just destroyed the landing page or the homepage we had before. And so, and that, that type of stuff happens all the time where you think something's going to work and it doesn't, or you think something won't work and it does. Um, be willing to trust the judgment of a wide group of people. Um, That's awesome. So the, the business that you went to after Expedia was a place for mom, right? And it was in a bit of a, is it, is it unkind to say it was a bit of a mess when you first arrived? There were challenges we were faced with. And so, uh, okay. um, what, 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 uh, it was acquired by a private equity firm. That's what private equity firms do, right? They, they they bought it at an auction. They basically bought it under the belief that the core asset was so, so, so valuable that if they brought uh, a group of professional managers on um, uh, who had been with much bigger companies, they could help scale this thing to uh, um, to make it into a big company as well. As we did, we, it was a bunch of uh, it was actually a bunch of Expedia people that came over to join it. Um, the pitch at the beginning was almost like, "Hey, this uh, place for mom is senior housing." It was Expedia for senior housing. So, for those people who aren't aware, Expedia Place for Mom helps generally seniors find uh, senior housing for their parents. So, the, uh, but in many ways, you could say it's like Expedia. Um, it's there's a bunch of senior housing properties out there, and um, it's hard to decide which ones you want to go to. Just like there's lots of hotels and. Um, a place where I'm kind of acted as the guide, the same way Expedia does, to help you find the right one for you. Um, most people who buy hotels know what they're looking for. If you go on and Google to search for a hotel, you're going to use the word hotel. There's really no other word. Like you might say you're looking for a bread and breakfast or you're looking for a hostel, but like 99% of people know the word hotel and search for the word hotel. In senior housing, 
like the number of words people use. We were just, we're still discovering new words after I'd been there for five years. So you might search for assisted living, Alzheimer's care, memory care, dementia care, senior living, elder care, senior, senior housing, um, uh, senior living facility, uh, assisted living facility, nursing homes, um, independent living, like the, the, the vocabulary, uh, uh, boarding care, um, in, in some parts of the United States, um, retirement home if you're in Canada. So the number of terms people use were just extensive, extensive, extensive. And it showed that people just didn't know what they wanted or what they needed. The help that you needed to give people was so much more extensive than hotels. Everyone's doing it for the first time. So they needed like advisors to help them through the process. So we had a much more hands-on solution than Expedia ever does on, 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 on hotels. Here, it really came down to the advisors and making sure that your advisors were working well with your families. And it's that job itself is a really unique job because it's kind of sales. Like your job is to like work with families and if they move into senior housing, then you get paid the same way Expedia gets paid when you check into a hotel. Like it doesn't cost anything for the family. Same way using Expedia doesn't cost anything for a, a consumer. The, the, the hotel makes the money and Expedia takes a percentage. Um, the same thing happens here. When you move into senior housing, a place where that effectively charges the, the property a, a marketing, a sales marketing fee. But so if you're not getting people to move into senior housing, uh, you're not really doing your job. Uh, however, like it's not like a, it's not a hard sale business. It's not like you're trying to convince someone to move it, to move. Like they're like, uh, it, it's probably the, the most anti-impulse purchase you're ever going to make in your life. <laughs> no one walks in the grocery store and says, Oh, maybe I'll get extra senior housing today. Like um, it's, it's, it's very much like if you don't have the problem, um, we're not going to sell you the product. Uh, it's far more customer service than it is sales. It's about like empathize and, and it's almost like a counselor in many ways. So the number of times people call and say, my mom needs to move into senior housing. I'm helping her right now. She's living with me. I can't do it anymore, but the money is all with my brother. My brother needs, I need my brother's alignment to make this work. My brother doesn't want to talk, even talk to you. What can I do? And so they're almost like, sometimes they're family counselors that are, helping them sort through like emotional issues. And that was the core business and everything else was around like, how do you facilitate, how do you find the, the right people, coach and develop them to make them as good at their job as possible, manage them so that they get the right management behind them, build the the, the, the incentive programs around them so they have the right incentives, uh, both for the short term and the long term, uh, and then build an infrastructure around them to make sure that they, um, that there's the right number of them, that they're staying busy, you're taking the, the minutia work off their plates, letting them focus on the high value stuff. I spent a solid year and a half with a, a small team and we just built up the infrastructure for the company that didn't exist before. When I arrived, all those advisors were paid um, 100% commission. But you can imagine, like, when after I described the roles, like this emotional counselor, paying those people's 100% commission salespeople is probably not the right, inf- like, the right choice. Both from like how they're going to deal with the, the families, but also from like attracting great people. If you're a, a, a great salesperson, great emo- like emotionally high EQ emotional salesperson, um, you say, "Hey, well, come and take this job with this company in an industry you've never heard of, and we're going to pay you 100% commission um, with no base salary." They're going to say, uh, "I'm good at my job. I'm making good money where I am. Why would I go and do that?" Um, and so it was really hard to attract good people. Some people, I'm not going to say there weren't good people. There were many good people, who advisors, but there were many that weren't. Um, and our turnover on advisors was 80% a year in the first year. And so when you try, like, not only is that bad, like in any company, having 80% turnover is terrible. Uh, but in this particular case, it takes a long time to find senior housing. So from the, it wasn't like when you'd go on Expedia and you'd convert, yeah. like, you say, hey, we're going to go and travel this weekend. Let's go and book a hotel for this weekend. It's, hey, I'm going to start the process. And it's going to take me months to actually pull the trigger. If you're stat- if the people that you're working with are turning over at 80% a year, like the person you start working with is not the person you work with at the end when you actually make the decision. And so we needed to fix that. Um, and the biggest thing we did in that first year and a half was completely blow up the, the sales force. The same thing that Expedia was doing around like blowing up the infrastructure uh, to create new infrastructure, we basically blew up the advisor model to create a long-term sustainable advisor model. We put people on a salary with a bonus structure rather than 100% commission. Uh, we increased training. We 
we took a bunch of the, they were doing like six, six basically six jobs when I started. They would, they would call screens. So someone would fill out a form online and they would try to get them on the phone. So they basically, which basically is a call center job. So we took that off their plate and gave it to a call center. They do the family advisement, which was the core job that we talked about, which is great. But then on top of that, they would do, they'd work with the properties and do like basically account management with the properties. They would do new property sign up to get more properties on board, work with hospitals. So all like local hospitals, oftentimes someone would check out a hospital and need, need senior housing. And so we had these same family advisors calling on discharge planners at hospitals and trying to build relationships with discharge planners, which is a completely different job. Um, wow. and, um, and then they do collections. Mm-hmm. So if the properties didn't pay us, we sent the family advisors to go mm-hmm. and try to collect. And so we split that into six jobs and we created a, a call center for the lead screening. We had the advisors just do family advisement as their core job. We hired someone else to do account management with the properties. We hired someone else to do pro- new property sign up, uh, which is like that's like that's the most traditional sales type job. Um, we hired a different group of people to go and work with hospitals and do specialize in hospital discharge planners and build those relationships. Um, and then we hired a in-house collections agency <laughs> or collections uh, people to go and like effectively counts, uh, accounts re- receivable to go and collect that money. Um, uh, but one of the big things I learned um, at APFM through this process is every change, no matter how good, in this case, it, the new model was like not a hundred percent better, like 200, 300% better than the old model. Um, but it still hurts you in the short term. Any change hurts you in the short term. Um, and so we had to go through the process, the pain of going through that change until we got to that new, better running space. And it took a, it took a solid year and a half. Um, uh, and then once that had happened, uh, the whole company was kind of, I call it, the, with the train on the rails. And at that point, we could accelerate the, tra- the train without it falling apart. Um, and so in t- early 2013, that's when the acceleration started. Uh, I took over marketing and we just, we scaled the business and it became far more like, okay, now we just need, yeah. now this is like Expedia senior housing and we can go and like do pull all the levers you pull at Expedia to grow paid search and landing pages and grow SEO and grow television um, uh, without the core underlying infrastructure breaking down. Um, and we did that for another four years. And uh, um, this past summer, um, Warburg Pincus uh, sold the company to some new private equity owners. They, they, everyone did, did, did very well. It became a, APFM went from being a, a, a small fringe player in senior housing to being like the, the face of senior housing in many ways. Um, so it was, it was a very fun, fun five-year ride. That's awesome. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious because as you say, it's such a, it's such a long sales cycle. It's so consultative. When, when we're talking about the, the paid search and the organic visibility, how informational would be the phrases that you target? Are you just targeting people who are, are ready to go now? Because you've also got all of that other, that other stuff, like you said, the people who maybe don't know what the thing is that they're looking for. They don't know what it's called. They might be looking for Alzheimer's care or something like that. And it might be appropriate that they go into senior living. So how would you measure how far up that chain, how far along you should go? Um, for example, with paid search. That's a challenge for every business. Um, I, uh, in general, when I go in to look at a business, you start at the end of the funnel and you work your way backwards. You start with people who are ready to buy your product and you want to make sure that you're in front of them at the right time. Right? This is the Coke strategy of making sure that anyone who might be thirsty, there's a Coke machine nearby so that they can buy your freaking Coke. Um, uh, that's the most important part. Um, and in senior housing, it's the, it's the person who goes online who searches for like, I need dementia care for my mom in Seattle right away. Like, you better freaking show up on that search result, um, uh, 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 because that, hey, that's the person who's ready to pull the trigger now. Most of paid search, or a lot of paid search, is that end of the funnel stuff. By the time someone's going on paid search and looking, some percentage of people who search for those terms are ready to 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 make the sale, um, are, are ready to at least like move to the next stage. And uh, it's the easiest thing to measure in the world. Um, of all the marketing channels, like search is the easiest to measure because it happens so quickly. You don't. You often don't want to stop there. But as you move further and further away from that, like point of transaction, uh, it gets harder to track whether you're whether you're spending intelligently on your marketing. Um, I, I, I laugh. I was talking to my uh, my current head of uh, acquisition marketing, um, and I was just I was just walking through the streets of New York and looking at billboards. 
And I'm like, how many of those billboards do you think are actually getting a positive ROI on whatever they're trying to measure for like a, um, for an R? Um, like when, when there's an ad for like, don't drink and drive. Like if they were able to actually measure how many people they stop from drinking or driving because of that billboard, the cost per life saved, like do you have any idea what it would be? I'll bet it would be like tens of millions of dollars per life saved. Yeah. It was just, it's probably not working at all. Um, but what happens is as you move further and further away from like actually being able to measure, people just start spending based on budgets rather than spending based on impact. And so the big challenge I think in marketing is finding ways to measure the impact f- further away from um, the transaction. So on, on search, it's really close to the transaction and you can you should be able to measure it pretty well. You, you, you click tracking, find out number of customers generated per click in the next 30 days um, from cookies and then um, track those customers over time to see how much val- revenue they create for you over the next like two years. Um, figure out how, how much of that revenue happens in the first like month and then multiply that out for the, over the next two years. And you can get a value. You can calculate what, how much value is happening on every time someone clicks on your, one of your ads. Um, you can do that. You can find out what the relative difference is between like someone searches for senior housing Seattle versus senior housing New York um, versus like assisted living Seattle versus assisted living New York. Um, and you basically can count, you should get down to the effectively down to the penny on what the value of that click is and then decide how much margin you want to take and pay somewhat less than the value created. Um, but as soon as you move up further up the funnel, um, let's jump to television, for example, uh, becomes a lot harder. Um, uh, because someone can see your TV ad and then come and buy from you and you can't, you don't know that it was a television ad that got them to buy. And in fact, oftentimes they don't know it was a television ad that got them to buy. And so you're, you're left with trying to build proxies and run tests to get as good an approximation as you can. One of the things, one of the unique opportunities we had at A Place for Mom is that there was no brand when I got there. We launched television and we could see like a measurable change immediately in brand traffic and brand leads to our website. And then based on that brand traffic and those brand leads, we could figure out what it was costing us replacement for, for our television spend. And, and again, you, we didn't know exactly like the relative value of CNN versus Fox News versus uh, MSNBC versus the HGTV. Um, but we got a, a rough estimate of what the value of television was. And then what we did is we, um, we put f- phone numbers on all of our ads. So it's a little quiche. Um, it's not like the, you don't see Super Bowl ads with like call now, right? It feels a lot more like direct to, to TV. Um, but it allowed us to track the relative value of the different um, stations. So um, we knew how many phone calls CNN was, was driving every time we ran a spot versus Fox News versus MSNBC versus HGTV versus NBC. Uh, and then we knew that every time we got a phone call, how well did that correlate to brand traffic coming through our website immediately? Um, and we use that to develop like a short-term value of the TV spot. Uh, and then, and, and, we, and we basically made that into like a, hey, what we could measure, we, we, could, we could create the value of what we could measure. Then what we did is layer on, basically just measure over time. And what we could see is, after about 18 months of running television, is that the brand traffic to our site was like, on a week-to-week basis was very correlated to how much we we're spending on television. But there was also this kind of like base level that was increasing over time. So you could see like the like if we spend a lot in a given week and a lot less on a given week, you could see like the spikes going up and down. But even spending flat for 18 months, by the end of the 18 months, we were getting significantly more brand traffic to our website than we were getting when we first started. And so this is a, a there's both like a, a short-term effect of something like television and a long-term effect. And if you can get the economics to work such that the short-term effect is even breaking even or even losing a little bit, um, if you believe there's enough of a long-term effect there, uh, you can make the channel work. Um, and then other channels basically sit somewhere in between search and top-of-the-funnel stuff like television. Okay, so after a place for mom, you're now at General Assembly. Maybe for people who aren't familiar with General Assembly, what, what's it all about? Uh, so so Ge- General Assembly has, has changed over time, but the, what, what, they're, what we are most famous for uh, is basically creating the short tech training 
space. Uh, I hesitate to use the word boot camp, but a lot of the, the, the industry uses the term boot camp. We don't think of ourselves as a boot camp at all. Um, but that's kind of uh, that, that whole space was created by General Assembly. So about six years ago, we launched um, these full-time, three-month immersive programs where you can learn how to be a, a web developer. And we got it to work. And so um, by work, I mean uh, people who graduated from the programs got jobs. We've since done audits. We had um, a big five, big four, I guess, big four accounting firm come in and audit um, all of our students. And basically, for our immersive programs, any student who worked with our career services basically was looking for a job. A lot of people don't want the job. They, they want to do startup or something afterwards. But if you uh, start their own company. But if you of those who are looking for a job with our career services, 99% get a job within six months of graduation as a web developer. Pay is significantly better. It's, it's, it's like this, we basically cracked the code on like, hey, you can take somebody, a smart person, and teach them the skills they need in a pretty intensive environment. Like it's it's four, it's three month program, but it's three months, like you're not working 40 hours a week, you're working closer to 60 or 80 hours a week, but you graduate and uh, you're ready to be an entry level web developer. And that's what we started with. Since then, um, we've added other programs. So we have like a data science equivalent where the same thing, you do three months intensive program, it's an intensive project and you, you graduate as an entry level data scientist. We have a UX program where you graduate as a, as a, a, a UX uh, user experience um, uh, entry-level role. Um, we've also launched a series of part-time programs. So these are evening programs to help you accelerate your career. So maybe, you're, maybe you already are an engineer, but now you're taking on a team of engineers and you need to learn product management. So we have a part-time product management program that works in the evenings. We also have um, uh, uh, digital marketing. So the, the key people that applies to is people who... Uh, our traditional marketers, they know how to basically buy television and build brands. And they're like, how does this paid search and like social media, paid social media work? Well, um, we have a, a part-time digital marketing program that, that teaches you those things, uh, as well as like part-time versions of all of our immersive programs. So we have an immersive program that basically gets you a job. That's what, that's what, that's what the ROI is for. And we have part-time programs that help you accelerate your career. And then the third thing that we've grown more recently is our enterprise programs. And so we work with big companies to help them reskill or upskill their workforce um, or even help them through uh, basically replacement to recruiting. Um, some examples of that, there's a big consulting firm that we're working with, one of the larger consulting firms in the world. And they said, hey, we have like 5,000 data analysts. Can you turn them all into data scientists? And the answer is yes. And so over three years, we're training um, their basically their entire workforce to, to move them from being data analysts into data scientists. So it's been fun. I think, I think on the enterprise side, I think we're the only real company doing that at any sort of scale. It's been, been a ton of fun. I, I came over directly from a place for mom or soon after a place for mom. I guess one of the big differences, although the, the, the models have a lot of similarities, one of the big differences with a place for mom, you really precisely described your, your target customer. Our target customer is 50 to 60 and they're buying a home for their parents who are 80 to 90. Whereas I suppose with, with General Assembly, one of the challenges that you have, particularly on the website, is you've got so many different customer avatars. So is the, is, is the drive to push people to talk to an advisor, is that a way to cope with the massive variation in, in your target audience? Yeah, it was, it, it was true at a place for mom as well. Like As much as I say that was our target audience, it was our target audience, but we had... Um, People, people would do it for themselves. We'd have 80-year-old people looking for senior housing for themselves. Um, we had people looking for their spouse. Uh, we had um, people looking for independent living who were in their 50s. Um, and we had people looking for Alzheimer's care who were 100. And so our actual audience was somewhere between the kids of the 50-year-old and the 100-year-old looking for themselves. And that's a pretty friggin' big spread too. Now, the, the sweet spot was the... 58-year-old woman. Um, oh, and I say women, like 70% of the time the person looking is a woman, but like 30% of the time they're a man. I'm like, uh, uh, there, there's, uh, uh, you got to be a little bit careful when you start narrowing down who your target is. Like, tar target marketing helps a little bit, but you have to be careful. And in GA, it's the same thing, right? So um, average person taking a GA course is a, a college grad um, who is mid twenties to early thirties. Um, but 
if you just talked to that group, uh, you'd miss out on quite a bit. Like we, we have, we have people who are currently in college taking courses. We have people who have PhDs who are taking courses with us. We had, we had one guy who was like in his seventies, he was a venture capitalist and he decided he wanted to understand these companies he was investing in more and come, went and took a full-time immersive program with us to understand web development. It, it, it varies a lot. And, and one, one final question, I know we're really pushed for time, but the, funneling people through to the advisor, I think is, is really interesting because I would imagine that, well, a lot of the course businesses that, that we work with want to move the other way. They want to make it as much of a transactional purchase as possible. They want people to, you know, click a button to buy now, or at least talk to someone about this specific course rather than go through the more consultative approach that you mentioned. So is this something that GA has is this is this like a conscious decision from the start? Have you tested the the alternative, more transactional approach and found that this is a more effective way? Like the way I think about it is who need, who needs to talk to? When do you need an advisor? And I think that there's four times when you need an advisor. One is when the price point is really high. If you're making a one dollar transaction, you don't need to talk to somebody. If you're making a million dollar transaction, you're going to talk to somebody. No one's going to buy a million dollar thing on the internet without talking without talking to somebody. Um, so the size of the transaction matters. Whether you've done it before, so the the, the uniqueness of it matters. And so um, if you're if you're buying a, a, a three thousand dollar hotel vacation, but you've bought like a, or or a ten thousand dollar jet setter safari, like you may not need to talk to somebody because you've probably gone on vacations before and you know how they work and you can do the whole thing online. Um, so whether you've done it before matters, but if you're, let's say you're going to buy toothpaste for the first time ever and you walk into the toothpaste place, you're like, I need to talk to somebody. How do I freaking know which toothpaste I need? Right. So, um, the first time you buy something, um, or the less experience you have, the more likely you need an advisor, the more emotional the decision, the more likely you need an advisor. So, which is why, um, the whole wedding industry, yeah, you can buy some stuff online, but a lot of the wedding industry involves like working with somebody because it's a big emotional decision for you and you want to make sure you're making the right one. Um, and so, uh, high emotional decision-making, you tend to tend to somebody, um, and, um, uh, how complicated the space is. And so the more complicated the space is, the more likely you need, uh, an advisor to help you figure it out. I'd argue GA is not particularly complicated, but the price point is pretty high. So uh, it's not a million dollars, but um, our full-time programs are 15,000. Our part-time programs are about 4,000. For a lot of people, like that's a hefty purchase. And so talking to someone is, 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 is valuable. Not many people go and make a $15,000 purchase without talking to somebody about it. Most people are doing it for the first time. Um, we, have, we definitely have people who've taken multiple courses at GA, but in general, like you're taking a course at GA to like, learn a new career uh, and or accelerate your current career. And like, you're probably doing it once, um, especially for the immersive part-times, you might take more than one, but for full-times, you're probably doing it once, which means that you need to talk to somebody about how it all works. Uh, and, uh, and then emotional, it's, it's, it can be a really emotional thing to go in like, especially for the immersive programs where you're talking about like giving up your job and going and trying to get a new job in tech and taking all that risk. Like um, it means that like, you're working intensively for three months. You're probably not getting as much, much time with your family. Like a lot of our top advisors, when I talk to them, they say, hey, one of the questions they ask early on is, have you talked to your friends and family about this yet? And if the person hasn't, they say, before we go any further, you need to go and do that because you're not going to make the decision. This is not a decision you're making on your own. You're making it with your friends and family because um, the amount of commitment it needs. And so three of the four, I think, are pretty clearly driving um, GA to having advisors um, on the immersive side. As the commitment level goes down, the price point level goes down, the emotional commitment goes down, we're more likely to make it more of an uh, online-only transaction versus the, uh, um, the detailed advisor. I, I love those criteria for, for when it makes sense to have a, a, a consultant-led sale rather than just a transactional one. I think there's a, there's a lot in there which, um, which you know, smaller companies who are, who are assuming that this is a click to buy now when actually it should be a click to talk to someone's sale could could get a lot of benefit from. Um, Ed, we, we've come to the end of our, our time together today. I just want to say a massive thank you for your um, your expertise and wisdom and insight on on so many different areas of, of marketing. It's been a really, really interesting episode to be a part of. Great. Thanks, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Um, where, where can people find out a bit more information about you? And of course, check out General Assembly. 
Uh, so General Assembly is generalassemble.ly or ga.co is probably the easier way to get there. Um, uh, and you have all the courses that you can go on there. We have a, um, we're in 16 markets around the world, um, but there's also online and remote courses that are available anywhere, anywhere you want to take them. Um, for me personally, I, I have a, a couple, couple of websites that I have not updated in about a year, but um, uh, uh, two books that I will read at some point. One's Marketing is Easy at marketingisease.com. And the second is, uh, I call it uh, Good Enough, Why Good is Better Than Excellent. And that's at begoodenough.com. Uh, you can find some fun so there's a few fun blog posts there, including how I got to see uh, Hamilton in the uh, uh, the musical in New York on from the ten, uh, 10th row center um, for uh, for list price when the tickets were going for about five thousand dollars each. Um, so if you want to if you want to go and see Hamilton, go, go to Be Good Enough. You can find my my post, <laughs> and you instantly get ROI on that visit. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Edward. This has been amazing. All right. Thank you, Tim.